You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Coming in hot on a Wednesday morning, afternoon, or evening. Hell, it might not even be a Wednesday when you're listening to this podcast, but at this very moment in time, when I am recording this voiceover, my stomach is so full of, of morel mushrooms right now, I can barely get words out of my mouth. Uh, a couple days ago, actually, yeah, Monday of this week, not like that has any frame of reference, but anyway, I found a whole bunch of morel mushrooms. I cooked them up, shared some with my neighbor, uh, fried them up ate them with pork and beans, which I absolutely love. And uh, I don't know, there's just something about morel mushrooms. The only thing that would have made it better is if I had a mess of bluegill or crappie or walleye or some some kind of fish like that to, to go with it. But I love mushrooms. Hell, I love eating. So there's that. Today, We have another Hunter Profile podcast, and today we're going to be talking with Jared Scheffler. Now, some of you may know him from his TV show, or his DVDs, excuse me, Whitetail Adrenaline, and this guy's nuts. So he, like, gets out of his truck, only hunts public land, and basically just runs through the woods, and I'm over-exaggerating, obviously, but this guy hunts public land and off the ground. So today we're going to talk a little bit about his youth, how he grew up hunting, um, how he got into only hunting public ground, and uh, basically from the time that he picked up a bow to where he is today and uh, everything in between. So hopefully you guys enjoy this podcast. I know I enjoyed the interview. But before we get into today's podcast, let's see what Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras has to say about what he feels is the number one cause of trail camera failure. Well, there are a plethora of reasons uh, why trail cameras typically fail. But if I had to pick just one, it's water. And I think most of us could probably, you know, say that that's common sense. Moisture and water are the number one enemy of trail cameras and the way that a lot of cameras are built these days um, they're not made proficiently to keep water out and that's something that we noticed right off the bat when we started designing the exodus lift was you know we were we were testing all these cameras on the market and and realizing that so many of them were were basically made to allow water in and, and you know i don't know if they were designed that way or if it just was a poor design or whatever but that's essentially what was making so many of these cameras fail. You have to think about a, a product that's sitting on a tree 365 days a year um, through all of the spring showers, through you know um, the freeze and thaw of winter, and all of these things that most of our consumer electronics don't have to go through. And it's pretty easy to see that that's the biggest reason why. There are a lot of things that we can do to make that not an issue. But typically when you're fighting for price and, and to become the best you know, price point product, that's hard to do. And I think that's where most of these cameras are falling short. 
If you want to find out more information about their trail cameras, visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com. Now let's get into this week's podcast with Jared Scheffler from Whitetail Adrenaline. All righty. On the phone with me now is Jared Scheffler. How's it going today, Jared? Good. How about yourself, Dan? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah. Uh, sounds to me, you know, through social media, I follow you on social media and uh, on YouTube. Which and stuff. I'm terrible at, by the way. <laughs> it happens. There's a, from, uh, from the conversation that we had before we started recording here, it sounds like you got your hands full throughout the year as far as uh, video and editing and, and, you know, sorting through all that footage is concerned. Yeah, it's uh, basically right now my, my life is, is there's three stages. In the fall, it's out there filming. You know, I'm out there, I don't know, 100 days in the fall approximately. Um, not a lot of time. I don't want to say off, I mean, but like anything, you know, I mean, it takes about 90 days for me to start getting burnt out actually on hunting. But that's that's one stage of, you know, what I do in a year. And then it shifts. As soon as hunting gets over, it shifts to, you know, we do several different shows throughout the Midwest and Northeast part of the country, I guess, um, through January and into April. And then as soon as that gets done, then I start editing and uh, live behind a computer monitor uh, most of my summer and until uh, August. And then uh, and they come out and uh, the new videos come out. And, and before I know it, I'm back back out in the field again. So, so remind, um, remind yeah. everybody here what the name of your videos are and and that kind of stuff okay the name of the company is whitetail adrenaline um every year we come out with new videos which have different titles uh i've been doing all public land exclusively since 2008 our first video is the only one that's not an all public is a partial some public some by permission then we uh we decided that we wanted to produce something that was just strictly all public land um so and i mean sometimes there's content where we're let's say we're driving along and we see a big one and he's on private land. Well, that makes video, but we can't actually pursue that animal. So you've set you've set restrictions to yourself now. Where for me, I see a big buck in a field. I'm going and knocking on that lady's door or that person's right. door, and I'm going to say, "Hey, uh, can I hunt your property?" You you're saying, "Well, that's private ground. It's it's off for us." Correct. Absolutely. The, what we consider public land is any land that's legally open for anybody else to access. So. Um, knocking on door, knocking on a door to get permission is not something that, uh, you know, I might be able to pull that off or you might be able to pull that off. But, you know, if, if that person can just say no to either one of us, that's not, you know, that's not something that we consider public land. No. Gotcha. So we'll get into some of that stuff here in a, in a little bit, but I want to go all the way back and, uh, talk a little bit about your youth and what, uh, what state did you grow up in? Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay. So growing up in Wisconsin, did who who were the people who influenced you to get into hunting? I, I would say my dad was the most um, by far. Uh, I grew up on a small farm and in Wisconsin, and uh, hunting it, it's still a very strong tradition in Wisconsin. I feel like it was stronger fifteen twenty years ago. I think. Uh, you know, for, for a variety of different reasons, I think it's, it's kind of dr dropping actually. Um, but, uh, back then, you know, 20 years ago, it was a big thing. You know, I mean, you take off school when you're 12 and you take the whole week off or, or whatever. And, and I mean, that was just kind of like some schools actually would shut down. I, if I remember right, um, I went to a big enough school where that, they didn't do that, but sometimes I think I'm pretty sure they'd shut down the whole, the whole week, no school because it's hunting season. Um, but, uh, anyway, so, uh, yeah, from the time I was probably five, six, you know, hearing all my dad's stories and, and whatever, that just kind of ignited the fire in me and I couldn't start hunting until I was 12. But by the time I was 12, I was already, you know, addicted to it. Um, you know, and of course I ran around the farm with a BB gun, you know, and, and, you know, did what, did what you do on the farm with a kid with it when you're a kid in a beat with a BB gun, you know? That's right. I can remember when I got my first BB gun and my grandpa said, all right, you can shoot as many sparrows as you want, but no songbirds. Well, 
yep. the easiest birds to <laughs> to kill were right, <laughs> right. Next to, right next to the uh, bird feeder. And I just remember, uh-huh. I just remember my grandpa walking outside to a pile of dead, like cardinals and robins and uh, goldfinches, and 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 he was so pissed that he's like, "Give me uh-huh. that! You're not." You put it in timeout for a while, and uh-huh. uh, but yeah. but I got yeah, I got to stick across my hindquarters a few times for shooting the wrong birds, yeah. So I can relate with that. <laughs> <laughs> so. What what started? I mean, how did you start in hunting? I mean, you said your dad was kind of the inspiration behind how you got into mm-hmm. it. Was it was it strictly gun at first, or was your dad a bow hunter as well? My dad was gun and bow, um, bow hunting because it's you know because it's, there's farm work and stuff like that, and crops coming off in the fall. There, I mean, I think that he was a pretty serious bow hunter, and he got out he got out there when he could. But, um, you know, definitely, you know, the gun season was very strong too, which for a lot of people, you know, now today gun hunting isn't maybe as strong, but in Wisconsin, there's a lot of, you know, traditional kind of, you know, get half a dozen, eight, 10 guys together and go do some deer drives. Well, you know, like I had five, there's six kids in our family growing up and, you know, it wasn't a very big farm, not a lot of, uh, wealth there or anything. And so we, you know, I mean, we ate a lot of venison throughout the year. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was kind of about filling the freezer, but yet at the same point, my dad didn't really shoot does, you know? Um, and he was really good at tracking deer and pursuing and, you know, he was into the chase and I think all that kind of, uh, instilled upon me to some degree. So as a, as a kid growing up and, and, you know, you kind of, your dad set the tone as far as hunting is concerned. When did you, how old were you when you went off the deep end, so to speak? What do you mean went off the deep end? I mean, went off the deep end. <laughs> I'm I mean, still there. No, <laughs> I mean, like when you're like, you know what? Hunting, I love hunting. You know, maybe I'll tell you what, it wasn't, it wasn't for me until about when I was 26, because in high school and college, I really wasn't focused on hunting. I was focused on other things like the party scene and chasing girls and all that stuff. Did you, was, when were you kind of, when did you kind of cannonball into hunting? I would say, um, uh, probably about the time I was 15. Uh, about 15 years old that's where I really like I was already like I mean that's what I did I mean um and my dad instilled a really strong work ethic I would say in me um and about the only thing that uh was I don't want to say acceptable but hunting and fishing was okay otherwise working on the farm you know that's what you did like there, there wasn't a whole lot of like tolerance or leeway for you know going partying or whatever, you know? And so I didn't really, I honestly, I didn't really partake in a lot of that. You know, I did some, but, but not really, um, you know, back in high school and whatnot, hunting really was strong. And then I kind of like, uh, didn't really do much with it. I mean, of course I still hunted and everything, but I just, till I was what, 23, I think. And, uh, you know, I was just working in a factory. I mean, I was making really good money, high school diploma, whatever you know, making really good money, but, you know, I knew it wasn't what I wanted to do, you know, and, and even when I took the job, I knew, you know, I looked at it like, you know, this is just a temporary, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life kind of thing, or I'm not on the 20 year plan. And I did it four years and, and, uh, actually, uh, got myself fired. I, I would say it was partially intentional. I just didn't want to be there anymore. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that was the, we had already filmed all the stuff the the previous fall this was in the spring of 2008 when i when i got fired and uh and in the fall we the fall before we had filmed our first video or the content for the first video but it was just kind of sitting there you know we didn't we didn't do anything with it and when i say we it was mainly my cousin and i but you know i was the guy that was going to be doing the editing and kind of getting the company rolling or whatever and uh he was more there for the entertainment value of the video i guess you could say so right. Um, as soon as I lost that job, I right away started editing the first video and kind of scraped by for, you know, a few years in there, just kind of doing other work on the side, trying to build the company, build a business into, you know, where I could 
survive off it. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we, we take a little different approach to our production. You know, we, we've never done any sponsorships, um, taken, you know, money in from, you know, other companies or whatever. So it really has taken a long time to get it, you know, financially sustainable to, you know, I guess kind of survive and have a decent income, if that makes sense. So, I'm not, I'm not making millions over here, Dan. Right. No, <laughs> I, I, I know how the DVD game goes, man. Um, uh-huh. now did you, so is, is your income solely based off the DVD sales then? DVD and apparel. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. So, yeah. so let's go back again. Now you're, you know, you're 15 you did you do any sports in, in school or were you strictly, you know, I love the outdoors. I'm going to, I'm going to be a hunter. Mm-hmm. No, I did football until, uh, Till my sophomore year, I guess. I think that was the last year I did. Or wait, maybe it was freshman. I don't know. It was somewhere in there. Ninth, tenth grade, whatever. Um, I wasn't having a great time out on the football field. It was a pretty serious town, you know, the kind of, you know, like every year go to a state championship kind of team. You know what I mean? So, yeah, for sure. like, you really had to, like, be there in the weight room five days a week all the time, you know. And I, I just really wasn't enjoying it. And I was like, you know what? Um, I, uh the day I handed in my gear at the end of the season, I went out that night and like, I came across these two big bucks and I'm like, what have I been missing out on? You know? And that was it. Like football for me was like, whatever you guys go up, have fun on the field. I'll, I'll, I'll go sit in the stands, you know, like either in the woods or, you know, at the end, you know, like whatever, I don't know it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I did football for a little while and, and you know, the rest of my brothers, I think they did football all the way through um, high school and whatnot. They're still, they're serious hunters too, I'd say. So, um, yeah. So what about, you know, as a kid, you started off probably like most kids did with, uh, a gun tag. When did you start getting serious into bow hunting? I bow hunted right from the start too, right from when I could, when I was 12. I mean, if you could call it that, I got a hand-me-down. I think my brother bought it at Kmart for 40 bucks when it was new and I got that ball handed down to me. Um, so it wasn't much of a bow by any means, but, um, I did start hunting when I was 12. So, so how <laughs> bow hunting that is. Yeah. yeah. How, how old were you when you shot your first deer with a bow? 15, 15. 15. Now, do mm-hmm. you remember, do you remember that hunt enough to uh, tell oh, us yeah. the story? Yeah. Yeah. No, I do remember that hunt. Uh, there was a piece of, uh, a local farmer we could hunt on his land we could hunt on a lot of different land in the area and and uh my dad went in in the morning it was my older brother my dad and i you know and my dad kind of pointed me like you know go up in that area and and uh you know see if you can find a tree to shimmy up and that's how he was i didn't ever grow up you know it was either you were hunting on the ground or shimmying up a tree and you know you know so i got up this tree i found this tree uh it was probably 15 20 feet in the air and there was just a tiny little crotch you know and there's where the tree split, it was probably like, I don't know, six inches, six inches, the, 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 where they, where it split, it was probably six inches around on each side, you know, not a very big tree, but you know, uh, I could shimmy, I could climb like a squirrel, you know, or whatever. I get up there and I'm like standing on one leg in this crotch, you know, like one of those kind of crotches. It's not like you can put both like both feet down and I'm sitting there for like an hour and this eight pointer comes down. And if I remember right, I think there was two bucks, but this one was a little bit bigger one, not huge by any means, but you know, great first buck. And, uh, he came by at like 15 yards and I shot and, um, hit him in the liver and he went 150 yards and we got him. But, uh, yeah. So that was the, uh, that was the first, first buck I ever got with a bow. So when you started bow hunting was, did you understand, you know, when you were, when you were 15 years old, did you understand how age structure works and did your dad fill you in on, you know, antlers and, and, and that kind of stuff, or was it kind of more of a Brown it's down mentality? I wouldn't say it's Brown it's down mentality. A buck was a big, you know, a buck, you know, he, he definitely encouraged the idea of trying to get a buck. Um, he didn't really, shot he didn't really like shun you on the idea of shooting a doe though either if you wanted to which i think is a good thing um you know he he talked a lot about like you know should probably just wait we should you know i should probably just wait for a bigger one and i heard that a lot growing up you know 
Okay, I probably should have waited for a bigger one. But, you know, growing up on the farm life, you only got so many days, right? Right. And there's a balance between, like, you know, shooting the big buck but putting some meat in the freezer kind of thing. Um, and so he definitely didn't instill, like, a, you know, you see a deer, you shoot it kind of mentality. But, um, you know, I would say definitely, like, you had – you kind of felt like if I'm going to shoot something, I want it to be a buck. And, you know, and, of course – you know, maybe a little bit nicer buck. Now where I grew up, <clears throat> you know, shooting a 130 class deer, that that's a big buck for that area, or or at least it was back then. And I think it still is today. Um, so uh, that, that would be a, a big, big buck, you know, and a two, two year old, you know, 90 to hundred inch deer would be a somewhat respectable deer back then. Um, what part of Wisconsin did you grow up in? Much maybe, but I actually grew up in, uh, west central wisconsin um and and uh there's some great areas in the county where i grew up but not in that vicinity like right where i grew up um there's like a, within like a 10 mile radius it's it's like the worst part of that entire county and so and yeah i mean uh it uh it wasn't the best hunting i guess was that and uh, out of high school then i i, I moved i I got some land to hunt down in central Buffalo County and that kind of, you know, I kind of locked into that for a while. And, and, uh, and then I just, uh, you know, I kind of got bored of it, honestly. Of of hunting in general? No. Well, yes and no. Um, I thought I was getting bored of hunting. Um, you know, I locked into this private ground, you know, and and it was, it was nice private ground in central Buffalo County. Great stuff. Um, you know, I don't know, it was probably three, 400 acres or whatever. Um, I didn't have to pay to hunt there or anything, uh, happen to know a buddy kind of thing. And, uh, I locked into that for what, five years, I think it was. And I was just so like getting so burnt out on hunt and I couldn't figure out what, what it was or, you know, and I was kind of filming stuff too at the time, not for, not for the videos that we do now, but, you know, and I didn't know if it was the filming or the how I was hunting or what it was. And I took a whole season to just kind of like try and figure out what is going on, you know, for as long as I can remember hunting is what's made me tick, you know, that's right. So what, what in the world is going on? And, and, uh, I remember that one season, it was 2006. So it was 10 years ago. I just took that whole season and I did whatever, like I hunted on the ground, like I used to all the time, just flying around. And, and I did a hunt in North Dakota and that was a public land hunt and, you know, I, I did a tree stand deal there, but, you know, it was kind of cool. It was a piece I'd never been to, went into it, hung my stand. This buck came out running. I rattled him in. He came down shot him. Okay, yeah, that was cool, you know, like never been to this piece before and kind of dissected it and, you know, in a couple hours shot a nice 10-pointer. You know, that was kinda, that was pretty neat, whatever. You know, so, um, and I shot one on the farm with my muzzleloader that year that kind of, you know, I was like, you know what, that's not really what, this kind of hunting I want to do or whatever just wasn't for me, um, how that hunt unfolded and, uh, and whatnot. So it's really, 2006 was a very important season to me because it really helped me redefine kind of like what makes me tick when it comes to hunting. And there's certain, there's certain things I don't like killing just to kill, you know, some people do and that's their thing or whatever, or that's their deal and whatever. I don't, you know, for me, there's some different, uh, elements like uh, what makes a hunt a great hunt to me doesn't necessarily mean how much that buck scores or or whatever it's how that hunt unfolds how much work went into it how much you know how many roadblocks you had to go through you know when you do these public land hunts out of state sometimes you're running into all kinds of different hunters or pressure or different variables like these deer hung up on private land all the time you can see them but you can't you know get them on public you can't call them over you can't find them on there so there's all these different uh when you when you choose to hunt public land like that a lot of times you're you're throwing a lot of these <laughs> you're basically setting yourself up for a bunch of failures but the reward is a lot a lot greater i feel like so and not to not to take anything away from private land hunting too because private land hunting can be very difficult in itself as well so right, right. so when so that kind of leads me to the question of why public ground and why, why do you, you know, 
you like that challenge, you know, the reward can, is great, but is there, when you're, when did you make that transition where it's like, man, I think I'm just going to start bouncing around to public land and hunting that. That decision was made, uh, in 2008, before the start of the 2008 season, my cousin and I decided to do it. Um, and, and that was going into, that would be our second year of producing a video. And, you know, we were like, you know what, nobody's done an all, or nobody's doing an all public land video. I think the Benoit's had a couple, uh, couple out there, but you know, from what we could tell, there was nothing out there like that. And my cousin and I, we did a fair amount of hunting together growing up too. And, uh, where we grew up, there was a very big public land swamp. And so we did a lot of public land hunting, but the private land we did hunting growing up, it was kind of like public land hunting because you knew the farmers and a lot of other people could hunt there too, kind of thing, you know? So yep. it wasn't necessarily public land, but it was kind of that kind of mentality, you know, you weren't leasing it. You didn't have exclusive rights. I mean, there's other people that were going to be hunting there too, kind of thing. And you kind of bounced around and you had the freedom to hunt all this different ground. And, uh, so we kind of already, I think my cousin and I already had that kind of ingrained in us a little, you know, at a younger age. And then we, you know, kind of got caught up in some of locking into certain spots or, you know, and maybe not leases, but, you know, situations where we were kind of locked into one piece of property all year, or a couple pieces of property all year. And that's where we hunted. Well, coming from a mentality of like, uh, or coming from a, you know, background of like being able to cover so much ground and, you know, hunt this place and that place and that place. I think you, when you, go from that to hunting just one piece of property or two, you kind of like lose a little, you, it's like, there's not as much adventure there, I guess. Does that, if that kind of makes sense? Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, I think it becomes a little bit more boring and it, it probably wouldn't be if that's what you grew up with, right. you know, right. if, if you grew up hunting, you know, this is the farm that I hunt, you know, it's where I always go. Well, you, I think you'd be kind of used to that. But, but for him and I, we grew up hunting all kinds of different places or whatever. And, and, uh, and so we weren't used to that. And so, um, public land really has a, an appeal from an adventure, you know, and, and we talk about that. I mean, even hunts that go really well, like we've had this Kansas gun hunt that's gone well for, you know, a few years and we've talked about it like, yeah, it's cool and everything, but it, it's, you know, we've done it already. It's kind of lost. It's, you know we kind of know what to expect, you know, and when you're going into new public land, you don't know what to expect. You know, and a lot of times it's, it's not what you're going for, but when it does, when it does happen, when, when you do hit the mother load, you know, you find, you know, you get on one or whatever, it, it, it's a lot more rewarding. Right. So, so you know, you, you started doing this, this public ground, you know, filming your hunts and you put out a couple of DVDs and whatnot. At first, you know, from making that transition to strictly public land, was was there a lot of frustration and failure? Or did you guys kind of have some, did you guys have, I guess, some success to counterweight the failure? <clears throat> well, I guess, uh, glad you asked that question. I, our first public land video isn't, you know, is our worst video, I'd say, action-wise. And when we came out with it, um, I was, uh, quite frankly, I was a little bit embarrassed to release the video, you know, because <laughs> it wasn't quite what I, you know, it's, it, it wasn't what I, my expectations would, would want to, you know, it, it, it lacked in that department. But um, to keep the ball rolling, we had to come out with this video. And we called it Scratching the Surface. We never explained why, but it was kind of, came up with that title. It was kind of our way of saying, just hang in there. We, you know, like, like this isn't, you know, maybe the best, you know, most action packed, you know, thing. Well, it definitely wasn't, but you know, it was kind of our way of, um, trying to get people to give us another chance after this video, but hang in there. You know, and a lot of people like that video still, you know, too. I've had people tell me that's their favorite one. And I'm like, what, you know, but, um, I think now it's a it's a great piece to the collection because it really shows the progression of where we're you know 
where we were back then kind of starting out with this to where we are today. And w- when I look back on it, it's like, you know, we did pretty well that season looking back on it in all reality. I mean, I shot a big eight pointer with a bow. We got a 10 pointer. We got uh, a decent eight pointer. And then uh, there was a decent 10 pointer shot in Nebraska. So we had an Iowa hunt, a Minnesota hunt, a Nebraska hunt and a Wisconsin hunt on there, you know, and four, you know, pretty decent public land bucks in a season. That's, that's, that's pretty good, really. I mean, and we weren't out there a hundred days, you know, like, like what I do now, you know, we weren't out there that, that much. We were kind of bouncing between, you know, jobs and keeping things floating and, and whatnot. So, but our tactics and our strategy and how we approach public land is so much different now today. Um, you know, I'd say the biggest thing is we don't put the cart before the horse. Um, you know, a lot of people, they, they look at a piece of public land, maybe on a, on Google earth or whatever. And they look at these pinch points and, you know, they begin to get their imagination flown. And I think you can relate that to a girl sometimes too. You know, you get your imagination, oh, this girl is like this and that is it. And you get your imagination, you're starting to put the cart before the horse, like rather than qualifying this piece of public land, um, you know, and seeing it as it really is when you get there to hunt it. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing, it, but comparing a piece of public ground to a woman, that's the first for oh, me. <laughs> no, no, well, it might be, but no, there's a lot of truth to it. Yeah. And and if you're a female listening in, the exact opposite, you know, yeah. I, I call it, I call it not getting emotionally attached, you know, and until this piece has really like proven itself, this piece of property, you, you know, there's so much public acreage out there. Why would you lock yourself into this and begin to develop this, this uh, mentality? Like this is where we're going to, you know, the fall is going to come. And, and on, Dan, honestly, I haven't pre-scouted since, I think 2008. I don't do any pre-scouting. Everything I do is on the fly because I can see it right now, today, the day it matters. Is this spot hot or not? You know, is it is it really worth my time? They don't, you know, the person that can pre-scout and in the fall get there, if it's cold, if he can snap his fingers and walk away from it without having any attachment to it, he's got a little bit of an upper hand on what I do. Um, I just don't have the time to, to pre-scout and whatnot. Um, I got a really good friend his name is dan as well and he does a lot of pre-scouting runs a lot of cameras which i don't do any of that but he's very effective and he does a lot of you know either public land or knock on door permission stuff and he does about five six states a year very effective but one thing dan's really good at uh i I don't think i i know a guy that's better at it than than he is he has the ability to uh do all this pre-scouting and investment and if in the fall when he gets there to hunt if it's cold he turns and burns and uh most people can't do that they can't you know they've already kind of locked into that and and they become comfortable with you know this is where i'm going to hunt or this is where i'm going to do my hunting you know and 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 when you're hunting public land a lot of other things can come up too other hunters can stumble across it or whatever you know that doesn't bother me you know a lot of people will be like oh stinking other hunters blah 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 you know well that doesn't bother me that's just part of the deal that's you're going to hunt public land there's going to be other hunters out there you know, and uh, you've got this is my spot syndrome is what's going on right now. That's right. <laughs> you know, I tell so. you what, I had a I had a perfect example of of what you were talking about uh, this past summer, and I did a lot of uh, driving around on public grounds, you know, with a spotting scope and binoculars, and and I had this one hundred and sixty class roughly uh, buck that was coming out of public ground onto this bean field every night, and opening season came in. And there were three other guys there. And I, I kind of was just really frustrated, like, hey, wait a second. <laughs> you have that this is my spot kind of syndrome. And yeah, I, I've never really hunted a lot of public ground before. So I instantly had a rude awakening that very, that very uh, same day where it's like, okay, this is what it's like. You know what I mean? So with, right. with that right. said – how often, you know, you do, you got to do a lot of scouting on public ground through the computer, you know, online, you know, looking at maps and stuff and, you know, to, to find number one, find the piece of public ground that you're going to go. You do, you probably look at some aerials. Am I correct? Yeah, 
To some degree. I take it with a grain of salt, though, because a lot. Of, the thing about it is, is so many people over the last five years have lost their ground to hunt, right? Right. And uh, if they got to hunt public ground, everybody looks at aerials. And so when you look at aerials and you, what you see, if, if you're going to use aerials when you're hunting for public land, you got to look for things that other hunters are going to miss. The stuff that like comes, that pops right out, like, oh, look at that pinch point. Oh, look at this, that. A lot of other guys, there's, it's obvious, you right. know? So um, I take a lot of that with a grain of salt. If I look at an aerial, I always, uh, and this comes back to the emotional attachment part. You got to be really careful to not get too wrapped up in this spot's going to produce or this, you know, this is, this is where you want to be, you know, right. Or this is where I want to be, or we want to be, or, you know, we need to invest our time here. It's a starting point. You know, that's, that's what it is. I'll look at aerials, um, just a little bit. Mainly what I do is I'll, uh, let's see, let's say I have an app uh, on X maps, or let's say I pull up all the public lands, uh, are, let's say I can pull it up on Google earth. You know, the, the state produces the file so I can pull it up on Google earth or an aerial. What I'm really looking for is, okay, let's say I've, uh, found out that this general area produces some pretty good caliber deer you know whatever maybe i stumbled across an outfitter online saw something on facebook saw whatever you know uh, i'll go I'll, I'll do a search right in that area and see what there is for public ground you know and and uh and then that's about it really i mean like i'll look at it okay there's eight different pieces right here if we decide to go to that area to hunt we literally just hit the first one. A lot of times we'll do a drive-by. We'll drive by if they're in a close proximity. We'll just do a quick drive-by. It might take an hour or two hours in the vehicle. You know, and what we're trying to do with that drive-by is get a feel for, you know, A, pressure. B, does it even look like it's worth our time? Yeah. You know, because there's eight different pieces here. We're not going to be able to have enough time to hunt all of them. Where does it look like? Where's the one, two pieces out of this entire chunk? or part of those pieces, what part of these pieces look like it might be worth our time. Um, so you're trying to, when you're hunting public land, you're trying to have a really efficient way to minimize acreage because most of the acreage is garbage. It's not worth your time. Right. If that makes sense. Yep. So um, that's what I, I would say that that's what I use maps and aerials for more than anything is just, um, structuring my efficient way of, or our efficient way of minimizing this acreage, you know, for instance, if there's a big town, you know, within a half hour of all this stuff, I'm probably just going to scratch it off unless it's really hard to access or unless I got to use like a canoe or a boat or something like that. Or, um, you know, if I get the feeling or, or, or whatever, that there's not a ton of, hunters in that area let's say you got a town of ten thousand people and uh it has a real like small towny feel to it whatever maybe you've been there or whatnot a lot of those people might probably have permission from their buddies or whatever you know if it's kind of got that real kind of country feel to it you know a lot of those people might not hit the public that hard but if it's a town of let's say thirty thousand it's got a university there there's probably going to be a lot of college kids you know hitting this public land and whatnot and and uh, unless there's something that's really hard to access or, or pieces that are, you know, like just getting missed, it's probably not worth your time. How often when you're driving around, you, okay, now you're like, okay, man, I, I got this piece that I'm, I want to, you know, I want to get in on. And you get in there and you, you run into other hunters. How, and maybe they're in a, a, a set location, let's say like a tree stand. How often are you playing off the moves of other hunters to maybe flank deer in your position, you know, in your direction, or you're making a move based off of another hunter's location? I don't say, I, I don't think I really do it much as far as from the perspective of, I'm going to use this other hunter to, you know, flank deer to me. Now, if I was hunting, say during the gun season, I would probably, you know, and I was hunting solo during the gun season, I'd probably maybe bank on pressure a little bit more like that. Um, here's my mentality on it. Usually, unless it's like a really good, really big piece or the, 
or, or I have a really good idea of where this hunter is. Let's say I see a vehicle in the parking lot. I'm probably going to leave. Like, unless, unless, like I said, it's a big piece or I, I'm like pretty well convinced this hunter's over here and I want to be over here, which is quite a ways away. I don't want to mess up anybody's hunt. And to be honest with you, if they're hunting where I wanted to be, it's probably not the spot I want to be anyways. And even if it was, they're there first. So that's kind of the mentality. And, and when you're hunting like we hunt now, which I haven't hunted out of tree stands since 2009, which a lot of people might think is whatever, not, you know, they, they might not think that that's a good strategy, but when you're trying to cover this much ground and you're trying to, you know, you're working off of like, okay, there's a guy in there. You don't, it's not hard for me to just, okay, let's go to the next spot. Let's go to the next spot. Boom. You know, we've come across other hunters. No big deal. We're going to shift over here. We're going to get out of here. You know, it's really easy. We don't have to tear down our set. We don't have to, you know, go through all that. And so that has, that plays a part in efficiently and effectively and very quickly removing a lot of this acreage that you don't want to waste your time with. So as far as from a, you know, that's kind of how I do it. I mean, I, I'm never upset if I do come across another hunter. I don't really bump into too many hunters throughout the fall usually because I'm trying to avoid them right. um, because it's not where I want to be anyways. A, and you know, sometimes we, you know, we take a boat in on a piece and we don't know that somebody's parked up there. That's happened. You know, I think once or twice, um, or we come in from a different parking lot and we're way back into a piece and there's another parking lot that this guy came in from, you know, it happens, but you know, I'd say as a whole, I haven't really had a blow up from anybody and I don't know if it's, I don't really think it's that the camera's there because I don't really sense that there's an angry demeanor behind them. You know, usually I think a lot of public land hunters are pretty, they accept it. You know, I think, I think a lot of them are, I mean, some people don't, but they accept it. Like there's, you know, I'm going to, I'm out here hunting this public land. There's going to be times where I, other hunters come, stumble onto me or I stumble onto them. That's just how it works. Right. So you have a very aggressive you know, from, from the outside looking in, it's a very aggressive style. You're, you're doing a lot of moving around, covering a lot of ground, like you said, but how do you slow it down enough to keep the deer from not spooking while you're making your moves? That's a, that's very hard to describe in words. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, when you're hunting on the ground like that and you're trying to cover all this, this ground, let's say before we've even spotted the animal, it's constantly a balance between, you know, moving quick enough to cover this, get, get rid of this acreage. It's not worth our time, but yet slow enough to where we don't bump, bump the deer or, or whatever, you know? Um, and so we'll, let's say we go into a piece, um, we haven't qualified it yet. We start out pretty much on a walking pace until we see something that gives us an indication that we should slow down. That could be we bump a deer. That could be we start seeing, you know, some fresh deer sign, whatever that might be, tracks, rubs, scrapes. If it starts to feel like we need to put the brakes on some, we will. Um, you know, sometimes we get into spots where it's like, you know what, let's sit here for a little while, you know, and we do that, or it's getting near the end of the night. You know what, let's just, this feels good. Let's just, sit, let's just sit here. So we don't, we're not always moving and there's certain spots we come across. We have, we have this one spot we've hit the last two seasons, two seasons. It's not a very big piece. And these bucks are coming off a of private land and they're hooking into the public and they're only in the public for about a 150 yard, 200 yard stretch probably. And then they're hooking right back on a private. Well, most of the tree stands that are on this piece of public aren't in this little corner and they're missing this action. Well, you can't really still hunt that corner. You have to actually go in there and, and sit. You do have to sneak your way in there because it's like this valley where everything can hear you for 400 yards walking in. So you do kind of got to sneak your way in to where you're going to sit, but it is a sitting location. So not everything is cut for, you know, still hunting or stalking kind of ways. Now, once you have a deer spotted um the first thing we determine is is uh i mean in two seconds you've got this pretty well dialed in you know if, if this buck is cruising you're going to try to get ahead of them probably you know we don't try to hit the calls unless that's like a last ditch effort uh, it, a lot of times unless they're on private land or there's no way we're going to be able to cut them off or move in on them right now otherwise i don't call um 
So, um, now what, when we're sneaking in on one, I mean, the general rule of thumb is this, is, uh, if they're looking in your direction, you just don't move. <laughs> it's, it's really, uh, it's really simple, but a lot of people, they're looking for their next step and you got to be really careful that you're not moving without looking at that animal. That's where I think a lot of people, uh, make that mistake. And I, I, I made a mistake last year, um, on this big one that I got and, uh, his doe picked me off because I made a, I made a rookie mistake. His doe had been looking away for five minutes preoccupied and I made a movement, not paying attention to her. I looked down and made my movement while I was looking down rather than pull my head back up. You know, I was looking at where I should go and normally you want to look back up and make sure you're looking at them when you're doing that movement. Right. Cause as soon as they, you know, turn or whatever, you got to freeze. And that's just how it works. And I don't know how many times we've had deer, um, that have, you know, spotted us and we just freeze and it's a five minute stare off, you know? And the reason they haven't busted is they either haven't determined, they think you might be a threat, but they don't know. Are you a human or not? Cause if you, you know, if you are, I'd be long gone is, is that's the way that I look at it anyways. Right. It's almost like they caught something. They think they caught something out of the corner of their eye. Kind of like you have sometimes we've all, what, what was that? I saw the corner of my eye and you stare and you stare and you stare and you look and you look and Oh, must, must've been nothing. Right. You know, right. That's what you're doing. And a lot of times deer do this every time when, when you get in those stare off matches, they'll drop their head to pretend like they're eating to just try and get you to, to move again. And you just, you just keep freezing. Just, it's just, it's just the game that you're playing with these deer. And then I go on for 10 minutes <laughs> and you might be just about standing on one leg doing it, but that's what you have to do. Um, it, you know, as far as like camouflage and all that, I mean, I think that helps to some degree breaking up your outline, but the biggest thing is your movement. Right. Um, movement is, is crucial. Picking your times to move. So, so I, I want an, I want an example from you. Can you tell us, an, it, maybe this has happened to you, maybe it hasn't. Tell us an example of a time you went into a, a, a private or a public piece of ground. You had an encounter with a buck that you wanted to shoot. You didn't kill him that first night, but you kind of had a strategy put together. You kind of knew where he was going, and you killed him the next day. Can I tell you about a story that happened last fall where I didn't kill the buck, but it was the best cat and mouse game I ever played with one, and I was really close? Yeah. <laughs> Does that it. work? That'll work. Okay, because here's the other thing. I, we don't usually get too attached to a deer. Like, if we get a visual on a big buck – we take that visual, like we're going to go in there most likely the next day and we're going to try and attempt, but if it doesn't work out, we're not going to get too hung up on that deer. Most of the time we shift, um, white tails, in my opinion, unless, unless you're hunting them in fairly <clears throat> controlled environments. And what I say by that is low pressure food sanctuary. They've got their cover unless you're hunting them in those types of scenarios. And even then they aren't, all that patternable at times. I mean, certain deer are, but if they were, we'd all have giant bucks on our wall, right? If they just did the same thing the next day or whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just the truth. Um, so, uh, last year I had an Iowa tag and, uh, we got there and, uh, we got to the spot and here again, we had kind of had a game plan because I, I had hunted it the, la the year before and we had covered a lot of ground. We had been very aggressive about it because it was all new stuff to us and we were trying to learn it and figure it out. And we were there for five days. We've seen some good deer, but it was really hard to, to really still hunt in this type of setting. And so there was a spot that I wanted to sneak into in the morning and sit a little pinch point that I had found that I felt like people were overlooking and, and whatnot. So we get into this pinch point sit there for the first hour nothing shows okay ditch it we're we're going to still hunt method again you can't bank on what happened last year or yesterday is what's going to be happening today so we're moving on and uh so we're still hunting around for probably about an hour and uh all of a sudden we spot this big buck i mean at least 160 caliber deer great great public land buck obviously um nice 10 pointer. He's with a doe and he's in this river bottom kind of stuff about a hundred yards out and they kind of disappear into this thick stuff. And so we bell, you know, I shouldn't say belly crawl, but we're on our hands and knees for the next hundred yards 
creeping in and we, we get into the thicker stuff where they went and, you know, now it's getting hairy. It's like, okay, the chances of us picking them off before they know we're onto them are not good, but we got to go for it. There is no tomorrow. That's usually how we view it. Like we're going to blow this deer out and move on to the next one, or we're going to get them. That's kind of how we look at it. Um, unless it's like early season and things really feel like we should put the brakes on and, and maybe come back tomorrow and play that game. Well, we moved into this stuff. He wasn't there, so they had moved off. Um, so we spent the next, like, four or five hours trying to figure out, like, you know, still hunting our, our way around and trying to figure out, you know, what chunks, maybe where he went. And and we're creeping along, and we had this – there was this river. There was a little point, and we had a suspicion maybe he was out there. So we kind of crept our way out to that, and it was probably three, 400 yards from where we had last seen him. And creeping along and all of a sudden I picked him off. He was about 50 yards out and uh, he, he didn't have us pegged. And now we, there was like the perfect scenario, right? You got him pinned. He's on this point and he's got to go one of two ways. The main trail's coming right by here. Put the brakes on and wait for him, right, man? It's going to be three, three hours before dark. He's going to come by. Like it's, it's like clockwork, you know? I mean, why, why get aggressive and sneak in on Well, that's what I should have done. Um, we had good wind, but as the evening went on, the wind died down. And now once I realized like he might not come off this point until it's too dark, you know, well now I didn't have the wind to sneak in on him. And, you know, if I had a compound, I, I probably could have, you know, aligned myself and, and gotten the shot I needed and everything, but I was hunting with a longbow. So that kind of restricted me there a little bit. So, okay. So that's exactly what happened. It got dark, you know, and he sat back there. I mean, it was unbelievable. He he probably grunted 60, 70 times, you know, them deep, just mature grunts, you know, snort wheezing when there wasn't even another buck around. I mean, he was fired up, thrashing trees and the whole nine yards. It was awesome. But disappointing at the same point. So what are we going to do? We're going to come back the next day. So we come back in there the next morning. Not to that point, though. We tried to catch him where where we caught him the morning before. And all of a sudden we can hear, you know, some trotting in the leaves and we can hear his grunts and yep, he's back. Well, he slipped through the stuff in a spot with his doe where we couldn't see and we thought they bedded down and because all of a sudden we couldn't hear him walking anymore and, and uh, they got into this thick stuff. So we suspected and we spent half the day, you know, poking around this little tiny, like maybe one acre chunk where it was real thick trying to get a visual on him. And then finally I was like, you know what, let's just sneak in there. And if he's not there, we'll bump him, and he'll probably go up to that point. We'll bump him from that angle and give him some time. And, and then we'll move in on him. And, and we've done that before and it's worked where we've bumped bucks that are on does. A lot of times they only go three, 400 yards. You give them a little time and you move on. You just, you don't have a track like you would in the snow, but they're with a doe and they're usually pretty easy to find back. And they've forgotten about you if you give them a half hour hour. So, um, we sneak in there. Well, here they weren't in there. They had snuck, they had gotten by us without us being able to hear them for some, some way. There happened to be a little path and it was all, all the leaves were matted down on that path and that's how they did it. Otherwise it didn't make any sense. It was like, how did these deer get by us? Well, then we found this path later on. It's like, that's what they did. They went out to that point. So now this time we took the river bank up, you know, and we don't know for sure this deer's out there. It's all speculation at this point. And, uh, so up to this point now, we've had three visuals on this big buck. He has no idea that we've been on him and, uh, we're going for our fourth. We sneak up this river bank and we're getting to this point And all of a sudden I hear this deer blow to like clear its nose, you know, it's not blowing like a snort, but it's just got something in its nose. It's trying to clear out. And I'm like, all right, he's up there. I just know it, you know, and we kind of creep up this, it's like got a muddy steep bank, you know, you kind of got to like uh, we had to use this tree to like pull ourselves up and whatnot. And I'm peeking up over top of this bank and can't see him anywhere as I know he's got to be right there. And, and, uh, then I get my buddy Shay up there who's running the camera and he barely gets his feet set. And this buck gets up on his feet and starts thrashing this tree. And I'm trying to get into this position where maybe I can get a shot. I haven't seen him yet, but when he, if, if he presents a shot, you know, I want to be in the right spot. Well, I'm trying to get there and all of a all of a sudden he starts chasing his doe and here comes the doe and there he is. Yep. It's him. And, and they're trotting, they're doing the, the playful bound stuff, you know, garbage. And, uh, 
he comes by at like 20 yards and just, you know, he did, it just, there wasn't a shot. I mean, um, and, and they kind of wheeled off and, and uh, I thought they'd do a loop. And so I snuck up a little bit closer and, uh, they never came back through, but, um, that was probably one of the, the, the best cat and mouse games I've ever played with a buck. I mean, four times we found, you know, four times we spotted him, you know, made attempts. He never knew we were hunting him. He was a mature deer. Um, and, uh, we were that close. I mean, if I'd, if we'd have climbed that riverbank just 10 minutes sooner, I'd have been 10 yards. I'd have been set up 10 yards from where he came through. And with the longbow, it would have been a, should have been an easy shot if, if, you know, if, uh, you know, when he came through, but, um, but that was, uh, that's probably the best, you know, I guess cat and mouse game I've ever played. I mean, like I said, we've bumped bucks on does before, gave him some time and moved in on him. Um, Shay shot one last year where we spotted him from a boat. It was a great eight pointer, probably 140 class eight pointer. Spotted him from a boat. By the time we beached the boat, we didn't have a visual anymore. So we, we made this big loop and uh, moved in where we thought that he was going with his doe. They ended up uh, busting us. They got into some thicker stuff and and uh, they, they pegged us and they took off. And we did like a three, 400 yard loop. We just ran ran this big loop and tried to get in this spot where we thought we could maybe cut him off. And we got there with like, maybe like two minutes of time. <laughs> and we did it. We cut him off and, and Shay got him. So um, that's that's just like, I think that's a good example of just being aggressive. You know, we're not, we're not looking at it. Like, I don't want to bump this deer and I don't want to scare this deer. And when you're hunting private deer, that's a little different when you're hunting deer that you don't want to pressure and you, you want them to reside on your ground. But when you're hunting public land, you don't, you don't know tomorrow there could be another hunter there, you know, and maybe he takes his doe somewhere else. So you have to be aggressive like that. I think, I think I'm not saying that there's more than one way to skin a cat, you know, and there's, right everybody develops their own little strategies and things. And one thing, what we do doesn't work every time, you know, another strategy maybe would have worked better, but in a nut, in a hole, from what I've gathered, most of the times, if you treat that moment, you spot a big buck and you treat it like you're never going to see him again. And you just, you just get aggressive with them and try to make it happen. Odds are better. I think that you're going to get that deer versus trying to play that game tomorrow or the next day or the next day. Now it's a little bit different, like I said, in a more controlled private land setting, or maybe you've got all season to work, work this deer or whatnot. And, and a good example of that is when we spotted that big one at 50 yards, I should have moved in. I could have gotten 30 yards from him. I know I could have gotten 30 yards from him. And, uh, and later on that night he came out and he would have presented like a 20 yard shot for me. So that, that was my mistake that I put, I, I went into reservation mode, like surely he's going to come off this point right by us. And I should have, I should have gotten aggressive right there. So. Cool. Well, man, I tell you what, I appreciate you taking time to come on the show. Yeah. But before, you know, you're editing your, your video right now for this upcoming, you know, of this past season. Um, if people want to take a look at your videos, where, uh, where should we send them? Uh, com. That's our website. Um, we've got, uh, I think, what do we got? 10 videos now, I think uh, up there. Um, and there's trailer videos on there. People can get an idea of like the kind of, uh, aggressive style we have. It's, it's entertainment based too. I mean, it shows all the struggles, everything, you know, we show other hunters, you know, and, and the whole nine yards. So, um, yeah, that's where they can find us. Perfect. Well, Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me, Dan. There you have it. Another podcast in the books. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that little uh, chat I had with Jared. Hopefully you got to know a little bit more about him and how uh, aggressive of a, of a hunter he actually is on that public land that he hunts. Uh, thanks to Jared for coming on the show. Thanks to all of you for tuning in week after week. Thanks to... Exodus Trail Cameras for believing in this podcast and thank you to my mom for having sex with my dad, I guess. Um, my wife for marrying me, my kids. Oh, my son, he slept all the way till 4.30 in the morning. Uh, so that means I had to get up at 4.30, but it was only... Anyway, I kind of rambled there. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Exodus. Thank you, Jared. 
Um, if you guys are not following me on Instagram, go do it. If you're not following me on Facebook, go do it. If you're not following me on Twitter, do that. And uh, if you're not wearing your safety harness when you're in the tree stand, then you need to wear your damn safety harness. <laughs>